0: Matthew chapter 20. It's a great passage. Let's pray. Father, we're looking at your words, so we ask for your help, that you would give us understanding and direction. The Lord gives us these parables for a purpose, and we pray we take it to heart, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to this new chapter in Matthew's gospel, but it's not new in the sense that it's not a new subject um, you notice the very first word in chapter does 20. Does your Bible say four? So does mine. Okay. So it says four, and that begins uh, the whole chapter, and that takes us where. When you say four, you're coming off what just was said, right? Four, So it connects to the previous chapter. And I personally think the guy that made the chapter breaks, which are not inspired, by the way, um, goofed it up because he really should have made the chapter break at verse 16 of chapter 20. That's because the whole section before it and that are, to, are one, they're together. Um, it's quite clear that the, this, this parable, which is pretty long and important um, in Matthew 20, is a continuation of the rich young ruler scenario and everything that was said in regard to all of that. All in all, that, that encounter and the discussion that followed it That's like 31 verses. I mean, for Matthew, that's a lot of space. He's kind of a concise writer, except for the big sermons he puts in here. But um, he, he thinks this is really significant, so he devotes a lot of space to it. And this parable in chapter 20 is not included in the other gospels, it's only in Matthew's. But Matthew, who was there, remembered um, how it affirmed and expanded on Jesus' comments on salvation that we found in verse 23 through 30 in chapter 19. So, So our task this morning is to get a hold of this parable in context and see what it means for us. And as we explore it, you gotta stay focused on the main idea with parables There's a main idea. You don't want to get too bogged down or to read stuff into it. People get really distracted with parables and say, oh, what does that mean? And who does that person, and what does that represent? And They're not all like that. It's generally one big idea. That's kind of where it all goes. So try to stay with that. It's tempting to read in. Don't want to do that. So Matthew has been, um, Matthew 20 has been used for all kinds of purposes. One one of the more recent ones is um, to promote capitalism. And I'm not against capitalism, but, uh, and the reason they do that is because it assumes private property here. But um, it's not teaching about economics, okay? So um, that has nothing to do with it. In fact, the purpose for it can be found in the very first words after the word for. For the kingdom of heaven is like. So it's not about economics, it's not about anything on earth, it's about the kingdom of heaven, that's what it's about. So he's just using an analogy from life, okay, so as all the parables do. So it's an illustration, it's designed to reveal kingdom truths to us. So it's not a dissertation about economics. So let's read, I'm gonna read through the whole thing and then we'll come back and kind of look at it. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for one day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And they went. Again, he went about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour... He went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, "'Why have you been standing here idle all day?' They said, "'Because no one would hire us.' He said, "'You go into the vineyard too.'" When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, "'Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first.'" And when those, verse 9, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When um, When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And then Jesus says, So the last shall be first and the first last. You can see where the capitalism part comes in. I can pay you whatever I want. You have nothing to say about it. But, um, but that's not what it's about. So you might notice the last line there in verse 16 is very much like the last line of chapter 19, the idea of the, first, the last being first and the first being last. That's the link, the idea link here. And as we dig further, um, well before we do that, let's define just real clearly who the characters are, right? Who's the landowner? Well, if we're talking about the kingdom of God, that is God, right? He's the land owner. Who are the laborers? Those are people who work for God. At least those who have accepted his call to work in the vineyard, right? That's who they are. So what we have is a description of how God deals with people he calls into the kingdom and how he pays them or rewards them, we'll say. So reward is part of the discussion. It goes right back to Peter's question in chapter 19. Remember, the the rich young ruler wouldn't follow Jesus because he loved this world. And Peter says in um, verse 17 of chapter 19, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And then in verse 28, um, Jesus says, it's verse 27, I'm sorry, in verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, the regeneration is the kingdom. I love that word because it's when all of creation is kind of renewed. In the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's for the 12 apostles. That's what's going to happen for them. And everyone, the verse 29 of chapter 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake, my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the first will be last and the last first. So there's the link. There's a reward for those who forsake and follow in this world and in the next world, in the kingdom when Christ comes, in eternity. So here in this life, it's the love and support one finds in God's family, we talked about that last time. So um, the incredible inheritance of a Christian today, even if they lose everything in their life, they're persecuted or driven out or fall in hard times, is this giant global family of fellow believers who are family, brothers and sisters, who will help and take care of you. That's, that's the great promise. And in eternity, it's this life in glory in the presence of God. So for the apostles, it's found in the Messiah's kingdom. And notice again in verse 30 there, of uh, the end of the chapter 19, we have that statement, the first will be last and the last first. So that's how that chapter concludes and that's how Jesus' parable in chapter 20 concludes. So this is all one big discussion. It's regarding the most important thing in life, how God deals with us. And what we find is that God does not act like us or think like us. He acts in ways that surprise us. So there's the reason there's a reason this first shall be last. There's a reason for that. And you have to ask first what? And last what? Well, first in the eyes of men might be the last in the eyes of God, for example. We see things differently than he, he does. And the last in the eyes of men, people that are very unimportant to us, might be first in the eyes of God. And that is what the encounter with the rich young ruler was all about. The disciples hearing Jesus say that it's virtually impossible. He talks about, you know, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Have you ever tried to put a camel through the eye? It's really hard. I haven't tried, but I just look and I go, it can't happen, right? So it's kind of impossible. And he said, the rich cannot be saved. It's not gonna happen. And then they they're shocked. You know, they say, well, who then can be saved? Because they're seeing with human eyes, and they're looking at external things. They say, well, if this fine, upstanding, religious young man would, cannot be saved, who can be? And you're kind of reminded of the words that God said to Samuel way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He said, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, right? So they're still kind of externally viewing everything so this parable is an illustration of the profound difference between how God and man think and it challenges us to recognize the principles that flow out of God's character and our need to submit ourselves to him that's what it's really all about there can the rich be saved absolutely Jesus says with men it's impossible but with God all things are possible so he can save anybody So let's take this story. um, Let's start back at the top here, this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So let's just kind of walk through the real situation here. So he's drawing a picture from life. Grapes uh, in Israel, when they're ready to be picked at the end of September or so, were always in jeopardy, jeopardy of running into the Uh, rainy season there, so they got to get it done quick. Once they're ripe, they got to get them picked. It was a race against the weather to preserve the crop. And there's this sense of urgency. So that meant long days and many hands. Get as many hands in as you can. So the landowner goes down to Home Depot or whatever the version of that was in those days, early in the morning to hire some laborers that are sitting in the parking lot. And he contracts with them for this very specific amount, the denarius, which is a day's wage, basically, a working man's day's wage and back in those days. So he says, I'll pay you your typical day's wage and denarius. And then verses two through four, it says he goes at the third hour, which is like around 9 a.m., and he hires some more. And he doesn't mention an amount, but he promises to pay them whatever is right. And then in verse five, he comes to the marketplace two more times. In the sixth hour, which would be noonish, and then in the ninth hour, which is like 3 p.m., and it's getting late, but he's surveying the situation, how far they're getting along with all of this uh, um, picking of grapes and stuff, and he determines that, you know, before nightfall, a little more help would will be, will be good. So he goes back to the marketplace, and there's a few men standing there, and he says, why are you guys here so late? And they said, nobody's hired us. And um, we aren't told, but the fact that they're there so late kind of implies desperation on their part, like... Uh, you know, they didn't get hired all day. They're still sticking there at the 11th hour. There's only 12 hours in the day of light, you know, to work. And they're there at the very end of the day still hoping to get hired. So you kind of get a sense of desperation on their part. And when he asks them, why have you been there all day? They say nobody's hired us. So um, he hires them for an hour, an hour. They'll have about an hour's work. Nothing like what that original group uh, Contracted for which is working literally all day starting at sunup right so now remember this story is not about economics it's not about labor practices it's not about anything like that it's about the kingdom of God so hiring laborers is really about the call to follow Jesus that's our subject and it's been the subject since verse 16 of chapter 19 Jesus invited the rich young ruler to follow and receive treasures in the kingdom of heaven that's what he said sell everything you have here Follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. But he didn't trust Jesus for that. He was too tied to this world. He wanted to hang on to what he had for real and not say, Well, I, I can't I'm not going to give that up for eternal riches because I don't he didn't believe. He didn't trust really. So what's the point of all this? God calls different people at different times and at different stages of life. That's how he operates, when this miracle of salvation, the impossible thing, which is bringing people to himself. He can call us as children, he can call us as teens, he can call us as octogenarians, or anywhere in between all of that. He can do that, and he does do that. Statistically, at least for people that study this sort of thing. Most people make a decision for Christ, at least in America, in their teen years. But I've seen plenty of people come to faith in their 30s and in their 40s and right up to the very end there, Um, sometimes much, much later. And so it's those middle and later years when people start to think about things, like they've tried everything and life's kind of gone on. They start to mature in their reflections on life and that starts to kick in for them and they question the meaning and the purpose of what they've been chasing after all these years, and um, all those feelings start bubbling up, because you know, you're engaged as a human being with this very fallen and very often disappointing world, and you see the fruit of human corruption everywhere, and how uh, it's not a just world, and things aren't always right. So, those people start to think about that, and they're more open to hearing about, you know, what's it really all about? I've kind of ignored that question, so they start to think about that a lot more. And of course, when you start having children, when you're starting to get a little bit older. um, That could be a big factor in realizing that really big issues are at stake because you love your children more than you love yourself usually. And you start thinking about them and oh, yeah, I can kind of slough off the whole God thing but uh, I want them to know something about it, you know, and people start changing their behavior with that. So many people come in the sixth hour or the ninth hour of their life, you know, many people do. Some come to Christ in the 11th hour, I mean death, is before them, death is approaching, what, what has it all been about? The, the great educator and philosopher, Mortimer Adler, who was a big hero of mine many years ago, who was not a believer, became a Christian in his very old age, and I was just blown away because I remember praying for him. I watched him on, with Bill Moyers on this show called The Six Great Ideas, I thought, this guy is brilliant, and I thought, he's so close. And I just prayed for him, and it's not that he came to the Lord because of my prayers, but I'm sure his wife prayed for him a lot more than I did, but um, he came to Christ, you know, as as an older man, after reasoning through everything in the world as a philosopher and educator and all of that. So there's a great variety in how God works in people, and when he calls them out of themselves and to himself, so we're all different. Some come early and avoid the world's big evils for themselves. Some come only after trying every evil they can figure out out in the world. Some come after trying their own philosophy and just seeing the inadequacy of their worldview to explain why we're here and our experiences and they don't find freedom from the burden of their own sin and they're still alienated from God and they start to want him and they come when they hear the gospel. Many times of life, many backgrounds, many experiences. So, um, some very foolish people when you think about the 11th hour people, some foolish younger people think, well, you know, there is an 11th hour, so I'm just going to kind of wait for the 11th hour. Then, then I'll, I'll get right with God. You ever meet anybody like that? I've met people like that all through the years. I'll, I'll just wait. There's two problems with that. One is the planes fall out of the sky and buses run over people and stuff like that. That's one problem because you don't know that you're going to live that long for one thing. But the other problem with that is if you have that dismissive of an attitude towards God, you're probably not going to be cultivating an attitude in his favor um, later in life. Uh, Unless, you know, you could, but that's a pretty foolish way. Just doing it as a superstitious, I'm going to hold off to the Latin. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's a mistake. You're probably not going to have True faith in him at the end. If you disdain him so much, you're not giving him the time of day now when he's calling out to you. But anyway, all these laborers in the parable, early and late, they're all called by the landowner. He's the one doing the calling. He comes for them at the time that he decides in their life. And that's true for us as well. Salvation is a divine visitation. And you can't plan on it. Everybody he calls in the parable comes. So they all come, some early, some late, but these are actually His people. So some he calls in childhood, some he calls on death row in, in our context, you know, just thinking about life. But what Jesus is saying is that when God calls does not in any way diminish the blessings that he has in store for us. So verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. We could call that standing before the throne of Christ, the the Bema seat in Corinthians, the place of rewards. Beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. So he pays them the denarius. Now that wasn't just sort of a custom or something he decided to do. That was the law of Moses. You're supposed to get paid on the day you worked the day right leviticus 19:13 you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning so if you have somebody you've hired they get paid on that particular day deuteronomy 24:15 you shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets For he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. So the law of Moses, the law of God, is a protection for the poor. So you are not allowed to exploit them. It wasn't permitted. You know, we're always told how the Bible is this ancient book and supports oppressive social structures and all that. It's the opposite. The Bible is so cognizant of the needs of the poor uh, far beyond modern times you know because we don't have rules like like that today the poor the poor then didn't need to go to the cash advance place and get charged exorbitant interest so they can feed their family while they're waiting two weeks for payday to come you know if something just happened and they had to get they got they know they get paid the next day when they work that was just going to happen that's a wonderful law that's a great thing that's really another subject though but the parable is about the kingdom of god but the landowner orders that the last get paid first when the day is finally done, and I think that's a little setup Jesus puts in the story there, a little twist so that um, it gets our attention, because they get paid first, that means the others are going to see what happens. So they call all the laborers in, must have been a pretty good group of them, because he was picking guys up all day, and, and they're going to pay the last ones first, the 11th hour guys, right? So what are they going to get, like 30 cents or something, right? So, um, surprise, verse 9, each one received a denarius, so they're getting the same exact wage that was contracted for and the early morning guys. Now, you might think equal pay for equal work is a modern idea, but no, they felt that way in verse 10. The, the guys that got up early, that were there early 2,000 years ago, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, The landowner's who? God. So, they're grumbling at God. (laughs) These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. So, this attitude is pretty interesting. They had actually agreed to work for a denarius. That's what they expected. But when they saw those 11th hour crew guys getting the denarius, they're like, this is really unfair. This is bad. They just pitch a fit here. We worked hard for you all day and what you gave us, we worked hard for you all day and you gave us exactly what you said you'd give us. That's, that's, that's the grumbling. Now remember, he's God, the landowner, so God's answer is really based on um, a central truth about God. So we're gonna do some theology now. This is theology 101, okay? God is the owner there. That's the first lesson in theology. He made everything. It all belongs to him. He's the owner. He can do anything he wants with it. So that's the basis for the discussion that follows. He said to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to the last man the same as you, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? That's so, oh, got him, right in the heart. Couple of points here, God is fair. Nobody ever gets less than they deserve. Nobody. You can never rightly call God unfair. Now, that might not be a comfort for you if you consider that as sinners, we deserve hell. (laughs) But nobody's gonna get less than they deserve. But it's nonetheless true that God is never unfair unless you count mercy as fairness. That's that's our problem when we think about these things. We think mercy is owed. That's a very common modern thought. Well, if you give mercy to that guy, I should get mercy because you you, owe, no, if it's not mercy, if it's owed. That's not what you've earned, The wages of sin is actually death, the Bible says. Right? So that's what you've earned. So anything other than that is a great mercy from God. Salvation is a mercy from God. Rewards are a mercy from God. Blessings are a mercy from God, and that's a free gift of His sovereign goodness. That has nothing to do with what you've earned. So why are they complaining? And he he suggests here what it is. It's envy. It's envy that makes them think he's unfair. That's a small heart small-hearted person, like the Grinch has. He has a small heart, right? There's something wrong with his heart, I remember from that cartoon. It doesn't work right, or it's too tiny or something. God, God should be a comfort to those who are in his kingdom because we don't receive what we deserve. So anything we get is a blessing, and it's mercy. And we're all gonna, every, every called-out person is gonna receive what God promised. That's kind of what the denarius represents. What God promised. What does He promise to those who come? Eternal life. Everybody's going to get that. Now, some people might get more than that. Jesus talks about in other parables that we'll get to them, but about um, people being given, you know, different rewards at the end. But everybody gets eternal life. Now, here's something else about God. This is theology 101A. <laughs> what was theology 101? God is the owner. Okay, here's Theology 101A. God is a person. That's two. God is the owner and he's a person. What does that mean? That means he gets to choose what he does. So the universe is not karma, it's not a machine, it's not I plug in this, I get this out. There's a sovereign God who's a person who chooses what he wants to have happen. In fact, if you look at verse 14, you'll see the words, I wish. That Greek word there is "thelo." It's I, I wish or I want. Verse 15, you see the same verb again. I, I wish. This is what I wish to do. I, I want to do this. I am I'm choosing to do this because he's a person. God is a generous person. He's a gracious person, so he's saying, I was fair to you. I gave you exactly what we agreed, but I wanna be generous to these desperate men that I found in the marketplace at the last hour. I just choose to be generous to them. That's my business. It's not your business, that's my business. He's especially drawn to the low, lowest person the downcast, the most humble. God has a heart for people like that. So he's especially drawn to them and desires to be more generous to them. Those desperate guys were probably in a harder strait in life than the early morning guys, even though the early morning guys worked real hard all day. But they got exactly what they're supposed to get. But those desperate guys at the end, he just decided to be more generous to them, to help them out, to bless them, because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. I wish to do that. So the first group, they could have seen the last group paid first and then paid a denarius and said, hey, did you see that? He paid them a full wage. What a generous owner. That's what they could have said, right? Isn't that great? They got a full day's wage just like we did. What a generous person. That would have been a really different response, wouldn't it? And a much more appropriate one. Because they got what they agreed to, instead they were resentful. So this story combines very important truths about God with a kind of unexpected corresponding attitude on the part of human beings. So the great truth, well, here's another great truth. This is theology uh, 101B. So we've got what's what's theology 101? God is the owner. Theology 101A is God is a person, and theology 101B is God is gracious. He's gracious. All salvation is by the grace of God. All salvation. As I said, he has a particular fondness for the lowly. My favorite verse in the Old Testament is Isaiah um, 57, 15. It says, Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's how God thinks, he's so big and holy and immense and above all things, and he dwells there and also in the heart of the lowly and contrite person. The 12 disciples had already shown a, a predisposition to declare themselves better than other people and better than each other. We're always arguing about that. Who's the greatest in the kingdom, remember that? As worldly people do, they wanted to be on top because they considered themselves. We're chosen. We're privileged. We're. What, what, what's going to be in it for us? We've. We've done everything. You know. They wanted to be regarded as the best and superior to other people. There's just no room for that. God looks to the low, lowliest person, the most humble person, the most contrite person. He wants to be generous, and he does what he wants. So being. First, whether first in time or first in the eyes of men or first in earthly honors, those aren't things by which he makes these decisions. God's grace is dispensed, his grace is dispensed freely according to his will and there can just be no criticism of his goodness. It's something to rejoice in. He is a generous God rather than criticize. Well, that isn't fair. They, got, they... Nobody deserves salvation. Nobody deserves it. Nobody deserves the denarius, really. But there are scripture teaches different levels of reward for the saints in heaven. But the criteria for rewards, the criteria is up to him. It really is. And he may not judge like we judge. And he may see things we'll never see. And we have to accept that. These guys that labored in the vineyard all day had a crummy attitude. And that would affect their reward. You could serve God all your life and have a Rotten attitude about it. And don't expect a great reward for all that stuff you did. I did this, I did that. How dare you criticize me? I've given my life to the Lord. You know, all that stuff. That happens too often, much too often. There can be really hard work that because of a hard attitude doesn't receive anything more than what was promised, which is eternal life. But one simple deed done in pure love or an act of perfect faith, that might weigh out, outweigh a, a, a year of resentful toil for the Lord, you know. Because God sees things in a different way we do. Those guys had labored in the vineyard. They had a terrible attitude about the landowner being gracious and generous And that attitude might represent a criteria God will use to determine a different level of reward for them. So what does that mean for us? Well, for one, just to remind ourselves to be continually rejoicing in God's free and sovereign will. Now we're getting into theology three or four there. It's getting deeper, deeper. God is sovereign in his will and in his majesty over all things. He's free. So let God be God and delight in what God is doing. You'll get a better reward for that than grumbling about what he's doing. We also need to have this attitude of humility uh, toward one another. What are the Christian virtues? The three biggies. Faith, hope, and love, right? Those are the things that are supposed to be most characteristic of us. And I suspect those things were gonna count more in the day of rewards, the day of judgment, than how many converts we won, or how well-known we were, or um, all that kind of stuff. I don't... I don't think pastors and preachers are generally speaking gonna be first in the reward department, unless they've suffered a lot for Christ. And I don't mean suffered like, oh, the deacons were so mean to me this year. I don't mean that. I mean, <laughs> I mean like jail and torture, that kind of suffering, that's what I mean. Ministry has real stress, but it's not that much more than a lot of other jobs. It really isn't, you know. So Peter does um, speak to shepherds in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is where I kind of like, Put my hope. <laughs> First Peter chapter 5, he says, shepherd to the pastors, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet lording it over those a lot of dear charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Well, I like that. <laughs> the unfading crown of glory. An unfading crowd of glory would be really nice, but honestly, I have no idea how I'll be measured on that day. I mean, those are some of the things, maybe. If it's faithfulness to Scripture, I got my crown waiting for me. But Peter's talking about a lot of things I'm not so sure I do so well on, you know, because I've failed in many, many ways as a shepherd and in my life. So there's no question I I haven't really suffered. I can definitely say that. Nobody's beat me up or... Um, Killed my family or burned my house down or anything like that. So people say nasty things sometimes, but way less often than at a construction site. So (laughs) it's not that bad. I haven't suffered great persecution. I think that Chinese peasant sitting in a prison right now and being beaten every day is gonna be given a much greater reward than probably all of us, right? That's the guy that's gonna be first. The person nobody ever heard of who's faithful to Christ no matter what. He's languishing in some prison somewhere. But, according to the book of Revelation, we're all gonna take our crowns off and cast them at the feet of Christ anyway because it's all from him. Every gift, every reward is a gift of his sovereign grace and goodness because we deserve to go to hell. So it's all so wonderful. So if I do end up with that little weird crown, I'm gonna throw it at his feet and you're gonna throw yours at his feet and that prisoner in the cell is gonna throw his at Christ's feet as well. It's a beautiful thing. If you want to see an example of the last shall be first, in, um, I think Barnabas in the book of Acts is kind of the, an example there. He was a great leader in the church of Antioch. And when everybody else was afraid of the apostle Paul, when God saved Paul, who had been Saul the murderer and persecutor of Christians, nobody wanted to get near him. Hey, I'm a Christian now. Where are you going? <laughs> come, come back. I want to praise Jesus with you. And Barnabas comes to Paul and takes him by the hand, and leads him to the Christian community, and introduces him to everybody, and if it wasn't for him, we probably never would have heard of Paul, right? So he did the the wonderful, humble thing, and they became ministry partners for a long time. They eventually kind of broke up and went different ways, but they were together for a long time, and it's pretty clear from the Bible that Barnabas, who was much more experienced than Paul, knew that Paul had special gifts and special calling, and let Paul be the leader, Just more than willing to do that. He took the secondary place. And Paul and Barnabas uh, were not in competition. Paul himself, too, while languishing in prison, he chose to rejoice that lesser and less worthy men, and I don't think he was looking down on them, but he knew that some of these people weren't that sincere. He rejoiced that they were out preaching the gospel because people were getting saved while he was languishing in prison because he believed in God's sovereignty and his free control of all things, his will. And he knew the Lord had him in chains, not Rome. Rome didn't have him in chains. God had him in chains under Rome was God's will, and that there were other people out there preaching the gospel, even saying bad things about Paul, but he was like, but you know I rejoice because the gospel's being preached. That's the kind of humility. He wasn't a grumbler. You let these 11th hour guys out there free and I'm sitting here in this jail? That's not what his attitude was. was. Praise God the gospel's going out. At the end of his life, Paul says in 2 Timothy, when he's facing execution, He says, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who's loved the coming of Christ, who loves him, who's following, is going to receive that crown of righteousness. And he's just so happy to, to know that that's set before him. So faith and love and loyalty, those are the simple things that bring a righteous reward. And no one who loves the real Jesus is gonna miss out on that award. Nobody's gonna miss out on that award. So let God be God. Let other people be exalted. Let them win if it's a competition to you. Because God sees your heart, and when he sees faith and love and humility, he's gonna reward that in a way that you can't even imagine, and you'll be delighted with. So rejoice when God extends generosity to other people and grace to other people. Be happy about that, and be thankful for the grace that found you. Let's pray. Father God, we're so wrong to measure people by worldly standards how big, how prominent, how noticed. You just judge and we will serve. We know we deserve nothing. Judge as rightly and give us what you determine would be appropriate for us. We're happy with what you do. And soften our hearts so we'll rejoice in the favor you bring to other people. We will take the lower place as long as we belong to you. In the name of Christ, who is exalted above all, we pray. Amen.